Before we start today's episode, I just want to give you a warning. There is discussion of sex trafficking and child pornography in this episode, so this might not be suitable for all ages. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. I think people need to recognize that pornography can lead to the very negative places. My guest today is named Joshua Shea. He is the author of The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About. He's a porn addict, now what? And porn and the pandemic. Welcome to the show, Joshua. Hi, Brett. Thank you very much for inviting me today. So glad to have you on the show today, Josh. Would you mind telling us your story and how you got to the place where you are today where you're sharing and speaking about pornography addiction? Yeah, um, absolutely. Like you mentioned, I'm a former uh, pornography addict. I've been clean for almost seven years at this point. Uh, I also kicked alcohol at the same time. And uh, my story as a porn addict is kind of textbook. A lot of unresolved trauma from youth. There was both sexual and mental uh, abuse at the hands of a babysitter for several years when I was a kid. And at about 12 years old, I had an older cousin introduce me to hardcore pornography. And I think that was the very beginning of me repressing those memories of what happened at the babysitters. I can also tell you that the first time that I saw hardcore pornography, I was hooked. I don't remember what the name of the magazine was. I don't remember what I saw on the page. What I remember is this feeling of calm coming over me, this feeling of everything is going to be okay coming over me. And the only other time I've ever felt that, and when people say that porn addiction isn't real addiction, um, I mentioned that two years later, I got drunk for the first time at a wedding. And it was the only other time I have felt this aha. I have found the secret to life. I have found the answer uh, to my problems. So from about 14 years old to seven years ago when I was 37, I used pornography and alcohol very interchangeably. Pornography was the bigger addiction of the two. Um, It was the one that I obviously, you know, went to great lengths to hide from people. And if you look over the timeline of my life, whether I was married or single or dating, whether I was in high school or college in the first part of my professional career or in the later parts, I always had pornography, no matter where I was in life, no matter what changes happened, no matter what happened that day or that month or that year, pornography was always there for me. And I can see the times that Things were going better. There was less anxiety, less stress. Um, I didn't use pornography or alcohol nearly as much. And then I can look at times of great stress when things were were rough, when I felt the lack of control in my life, when things were you know a bit out of hand. That's where you see the heavy duty use of pornography and, and alcohol. And ultimately, uh, when I was 37, I was uh, forced into rehab. I went. For alcoholism out in California, I I personally live in Maine, 
and I thought I'd be there for 28 days, and I ended up being there for 70 days. And it was at the end, it was the last few weeks where my uh, caseworker, I, I was very open with him about, you know, my life, and he recognized that there was truly a, a problem there with pornography and with unhealthy sexuality. So he had me talk to a certified sex addiction therapist first time while I was there uh, off campus. And when I came home, I started seeing a therapist and we ultimately decided that uh, about six, eight months later that I go to another inpatient rehab, this time for porn addiction. So in 2015, I went to Texas and I was at a inpatient facility there for seven weeks. And what I ultimately decided was uh, a little bit later on, my recovery, uh, you know, like most people, was difficult in the beginning and, and it was challenging. And I focused totally on myself. But as things got easier, as life, I don't want to say got back to normal, but as a new normal emerged, I recognized just how few resources there were out there. When I wanted to learn more about this, and I'm a journalist by trade, I've been writing professionally since 18 years old, um, I do research, and there was just not much research out there for the average person. I'm the kind of geek who loves to read studies, you know, and I, I can sit there with the New England Journal of Medicine all day and enjoy it, but I know most people aren't like that, and there weren't resources for the average person. So in 2017, I launched my website, recoveringpornaddict.com, uh, to start talking about this. And then in 2018, I wrote my first book, The Addiction Nobody Talked About. And from there, I started doing uh, speaking at libraries, speaking at churches or, or other groups, which I continue to do to this day uh, virtually online. Um, I just did my first TED Talk, which uh, by the time that there should be released. Um, and ultimately, I study as much as I can about it because I think that I bring a unique perspective to this in that. I probably know more than most professionals in the uh, arena about it, but I also have the advantage to some degree of having experienced it and having been there and knowing what true addiction feels like. At this point, you know, I don't know what it's like to be a spiritual religious person. I don't know what it's like to be called by God, but I feel like I'm supposed to be out there going on shows like yours, writing books, of which I've done three now, and just spreading the word that pornography addiction is real, that it is something that especially parents need to recognize when it comes to their kids, because we now have you know unfettered high-speed internet access, unlike when I grew up and you had to deal with magazines or VHS tapes. Uh, and we just need more education out there. We need to have more people recognizing that uh, there are negative repercussions to using too much pornography for many people. I mean, I'm not out there trying to ban porn because that's ridiculous. Uh, I'm not out there trying to uh, have any real moral or social stand on this. I think people need to make their own decisions when it comes to the morality of porn or how it fits into society. All I'm really pushing for is that we become more educated in society, that we're able to have open discussions about pornography and society, 
because I believe that ultimately education is the first step to solving any problem. In your personal opinion, what do you think some of the negative effects are of pornography addiction? Do you see it affecting people's relationships or their self-esteem or what kind of areas do you see that affecting people? Well, uh, you know, as, as far as pornography addiction goes, every addiction has its own side effects. You know, if you're a gambling addict, you are more likely to go bankrupt than a porn addict. You're more likely to lose your kid's college fund than a, than a porn addict. If you're a heroin addict, there are going to be physical reactions that you have that you don't if you're a porn addict. But, but the thing with addiction is it's largely the same from mind to mind. If you're addicted to cocaine, I'm addicted to porn, somebody's addicted to food, the next person's addicted to alcohol, uh, largely the same chemical process is happening in our brain, despite the fact that we all will have side effects that are different and native only to our addiction. So that's the first thing that people need to realize. There is, like, for instance, a loss of sexual interest in being a porn addict, and a lot of partners who I work with uh, they seem to think that's a rejection of them. And what I often have to prove to them is that when you're an addict of anything, your sex drive drops. And it just happens that, you know, because of pornography, which involves naked people, which involves, you know, looking at sexuality, you are not, ironically, as interested in having sex, but it's nothing to do with the pornography. It's due to the fact you have an addicted mind. And that, that's an important thing for uh, partners to, to recognize up there. As for the person themselves, uh, what they're going to recognize is a lot of the symptoms of addiction, where you start planning your life around that addiction, where you start trading in things that used to make you feel good, things you enjoyed, hanging out with friends, you know, watching TV, you know, leisure activities for your uh, vice or for your addiction you may start to have some negative consequences. Maybe you start dropping the ball at work or you're not doing as good a job at school as you were. But a lot of times when it comes to addiction, people find that they make promises to themselves they just can't keep. One of the hallmarks of porn addiction is people who tell themselves, oh, I'm just going to go look for 30 minutes or an hour. And then suddenly three hours is gone. And the reason is because they can't find that one piece of pornography that hits them in the mind. You know, it's, it's addiction uh, of pornography is very different than people who casually look at pornography. People who casually look at pornography are looking to get off with what's between their legs. People who are addicts are looking to get off with what's in their mind. And unfortunately, much like the alcoholic who has to move from beer to wine to hard stuff, or much like the gambling addict who starts at $20 a hand of blackjack and goes to 50 or 100 the porn addict has to escalate their behavior as well. And that's why you get guys who say they're going to be there for 30 minutes and are there for three hours, because they can't find that one piece that sends the dopamine and the serotonin and the oxytocin and all those chemicals flooding into their brain. They can't find it because They've done so much damage as an addict. It's like any other addiction, mostly, in that it deals with brain chemistry and it deals with your brain always fiending for these chemicals. And because you're always fiending for these chemicals, because you don't have the willpower to fight against it, 
there were a lot of negative repercussions in your life. You kind of touched on it earlier that this generation of kids is exposed to pornography at a younger age because of technology. What do you think some of the signs are that parents should be looking for that their child has been exposed to pornography? Well, I mean, I, I don't think you could ever know for sure. Your kid goes into their room and shuts their door. You know, who knows what they're doing in there? And, and I talk to a lot of parents who put filters on their kids' phones, especially the kids who are, you know, 11 or 12 years old, because 12 years old is the average age that a boy starts looking at pornography these days. And the thing that I, I always tell parents is that, you know, it's not a matter of if your kid is going to see porn. It's a matter of when. And if you put filters on their phone and kind of stuck your head in the sand and hoped that was going to take care of it, uh, you're, you're not porn-proofing your kid. You know, how do you know what the kid is going to say? How do you know what the kid is going to do when their friend at the bus stop holds up his phone and he's got whatever Pornhub is showing on that phone? How's the kid going to react? So the important thing, you know, before you have to start wondering, are there red flags? Are there what's going on here? You have to educate your kid. And it doesn't have to be graphic. It doesn't have to be over the top. And I don't think it's part of the birds and beat speech. I think not looking at pornography is part of the stay away from cigarette speech. Don't drink alcohol if you see it. Or, you know, when you're 18, you can make decisions as a grown-up. But, you know, when you're a kid, I don't want you looking at the, you know, naked people in my house on your computer or your phone. And, you know, it, it's. I think that, you know, with younger kids, you can make it real simple of that if you see a naked person on your phone or your tablet, just come tell mommy and daddy. And then when you get boys who are starting to be 13 or 14 or even girls, I think you can start to tell them about some of the real repercussions like porn-induced erectile dysfunction, which is essentially where a guy uh, floods his brain so much with dopamine and whatnot that real sex doesn't, you know, basically gives him erectile dysfunction. The only way that you can perform is if, or the only way that you can finish when you have porn-induced erectile dysfunction is if pornography is playing in the room. And I, I coached a couple uh, last year, actually my, probably 2018 at this point, and it was a 22-year-old guy, 20-year-old woman uh, who were partners, and they had to bring a laptop into the bedroom and put it on a nightstand so he could watch pornography while they had sex, because that was the only way he could finish. And she eventually figured out that they could be in separate rooms of the house. He could be in the bedroom, she could be in the living room, and through FaceTime, they could have a sexting session. And it actually, you know, it, it actually made him, uh, you know, get an erection because he was viewing it on a screen. Even though that was his girlfriend, who he had seen naked 10,000 times, that was pornography to him because it was on a screen. And then when he was very close, he would sound the alarm or whatever he did, and she would come running in from the other room, and they would, you know, quote unquote, finish like normal people. And this is a 22 year old guy who he's now, he now doesn't have it most of the time, but working through it. Uh, but it's been, you know, over a year and a half of him working through it. And that's one of those things that. Nobody really talks about. I think if you tell 
these 13 and 14-year-old boys about porn-induced erectile dysfunction, they might think about how much porn they're using. You know, 13, 13, 14-year-old boys don't want to be porn addicts. What they want are girlfriends who they can have sex with, but they'll take what they can get in the meantime. But I think you need to let them know that, hey, guess what? When you're 17 or 18 and you really do get a girlfriend, if you can't have sex, you know, like, like a, in a traditional way, they may leave you. So you may be stuck with porn forever if you watch too much of it. You may never end up with a real girl. You know, never ending up with a real girl might, might mean you never have kids, you never have a family. This is where the negative of porn can lead you. It really affect your relationships. So be careful when you're using porn. You know, it's, I think it's a normal thing to want to see porn when you're a kid. You know, it, it's sexuality. Sexuality, especially as you're going through puberty, is a confusing, mysterious thing. And I absolutely understand why everybody, you know, uh, ultimately looks at one time or another. But we have to try to make sure that our kids remain in a place of healthy sexuality. Because it's not, it's not really about being pro-porn or anti-porn. It's about being pro-healthy sexuality and anti-unhealthy sexuality. If you can just at a young age start having a conversation with your kid, be open about your sex organs. Don't give them cute little names. And don't treat sexuality like it's a taboo. Don't treat it like it's something that, you know, you have to talk about in hushed tone. Don't shame them. Don't make them feel like there's a stigma to it. The more that you can be open with your children, the more that you can have these discussions easily, and the more you're going to raise a sexually healthy child. And I know that, you know, some people don't even want to say the phrase sexually healthy child, but you have to accept the fact that we are all sexual beings. You know, sex is a great thing. It's how we got here. And, you know, sexuality is not a bad thing. It's not a tab thing, but it needs to be a healthy thing. And right now in our society, uh, unfortunately, technology uh, is going at such a speed, our little monkey brains can't keep up with it. If you think about it, you and I have been talking now for about 20 minutes. There's a kid somewhere out there who has just watched more hardcore pornography than his grandfather saw in their entire lifetime. You know, it's a 13-year-old kid. How do you reconcile that? And how do you reconcile it through two generations? My grandmother, uh, when I was, uh, she's not with us anymore, but when I was younger, she told us a story about how the police kicked her out of a a public beach, not far from where I lived there, there's a lake. And she was wearing a two-piece bathing suit that showed about two inches of skin around her midsection when she was like 26, 27. So you're talking, you know, late 40s early 1950s. And it was, the police said she was indecent and she needed to leave. Think about that. That's a two inches of somebody's, you know, belly that was freaking everybody out. Now you've got high school kids who are trading nude pictures and you've got, you know, just about every high school kid posting bikini shots and shirtless shots onto Instagram. You've got OnlyFans that has, you know, blown up over the last year because of the pandemic, uh, where now do-it-yourself porn is a legitimate job. And I don't think our brains keep up with it if we don't start talking about it. We need to talk about 
you know, what is healthy, what is unhealthy, what is a good choice, what is not a good choice. And, and I'm not going to tell anybody what a good choice is for them or not. They have to determine that on their own. But I think people need to recognize that uh, pornography can lead to the very negative places if, if they don't realize that. What suggestions would you make to someone that's struggling with a porn addiction? Uh, the first thing, yeah, I mean, I, I, I tell everybody, get yourself into professional therapy. That's what, you know, did the trick for me. Uh, that really helped me because most people believe, and I'm one of them, that addiction is a uh, symptom of a bigger problem. In my case, it was unresolved trauma, and that's the case for most porn addicts. For somebody who might be an alcoholic, it's only about 65% it's, it's unresolved trauma. With porn addiction, it's about 90%. So you need to find out what it's about. And I think that you could go to a therapist. And even if you don't want to stay with the therapist forever, plot some kind of strategy for dealing with your porn addiction. If you want to try it on your own, try it on your own. If you want to go to 12 steps, go to 12 steps. Do research, whatever it takes, you know, but, but plan, plan something out. For people who are uh, hesitant to walk into a therapist, say, here's the issue, what, what do I do now? Uh, I urge people to find somebody like me to talk to who has been there and who won't judge you. One of the things that I do a lot in my coaching and, and uh, counseling practice for people is that I kind of serve as that uh, way station between doing nothing and going to real therapy. I'll talk to an addict on the phone, and you can hear in their voice how relieved they are for the first time not to have to hide it, not to have to lie about it, to be open and tell the truth. And they they learn quickly, I'm not going to judge them. I've probably seen everything they've seen and worse. You know, I've been there, but I also know you can get you can get out of it, and I can be that voice of hope for them and a realistic voice of hope. Because I've been there, because I can relate to them in a way that, that nobody else can. And it's amazing the first time they have that conversation. And you try to explain to them that you can go to Sex Addicts Anonymous or Sexaholics Anonymous and have these discussions with other men and women. You can go into therapy and your therapist is not going to shame you or judge you. It's, it's about creating a safe space. It's about creating... Uh, a place where someone could be open about their issues and a place where they can explore what happened in the past to get them there. I can tell you that my cravings, my triggers, they they didn't fully disappear, but they probably disappeared by 80% once I figured out how I got to the place I did. And I had to go back and I had to uh, deal with what happened at that babysitter's house. I had to deal with the bad choices I made along the way in life. I had to, you know, really go back and, and dissect what happened and work my way through it. And and that's not a fun process. It's scary and it's frustrating and it's sad and it's angering and it's, you know, at times pathetic and, and you know, it, it puts you through the ringer, but you come out such a clean person on the other side that you know, you've know you dealt the reason that you're looking at porn, the reason that you're drinking, the reason that you're gambling or, or doing coke or whatever it is. If you know what that reason is and you deal with that, well, then you don't need your crutch anymore. 
And that's that's what I found ultimately is that as a writer, as a researcher, uh, especially for my website, I do write a lot of uh, articles that have original research. I sometimes have to go on Pornhub or have to go on other sites to get numbers. Yesterday, I did a piece on the credit card companies abandoning Pornhub, and I needed some statistics uh, about Pornhub, about how many videos they had in a couple certain categories. And I had to go on there and just type it in. But what do I see when I, when I, when I, have, if I have to go to Pornhub and get a statistic? I see a lot of thumbnails of very unhappy people, of people who are not healthy, of people who uh, they think that this is, is normal or, or they're being forced into it against their will. You know, it, it, I look at it now through the eyes of somebody who is healthy. I don't get that craving to, oh, let's click on this and let's click on this. I want to get the information and get the hell out of there as quickly as I can because I don't have that pull towards pornography anymore because I dealt with the unresolved trauma. I, I dealt with my triggers or any cravings that I had. And now, seven years later, if I wasn't doing this porn addiction uh, writing and teaching, I don't know how much of a real... Uh, place it would have in my life. Unless I'm talking about porn addiction, I don't talk about my alcoholism, but I don't have any alcohol in the fridge and I don't go drinking now because I worked my way through it. I can go sit with you at a bar and have a ginger ale. I don't have the cravings for the alcohol and I know what happens if I drink alcohol. Same thing with porn. And that is only because, and I don't think you can just white knuckle it and, and stay away from it because I was in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous for a little over a year. And I ended up leaving because I didn't think that people were healthy to be around. Because more than half the people who were there, they never went back and looked at the trauma or or abuse or whatever it was that caused them to become an alcoholic. There were people there who for 20 years had not had a drink, but they were still clearly alcoholics. They were just white knuckling it every day and their entire life was 12 steps, and their entire life was staying away from alcohol. And I only think that, you know, half a step better than being an active alcoholic uh, or being an active porn addict. What I needed to do to move forward with my life was really remove the addiction and move the addictive tendency. And I, in the 12-step group that I was part of, I didn't see a lot of people doing that. I didn't think that was healthy for me to be around. So I, I left because I choose to be around people who either are fighting their addiction um, and are being successful, or I hang around with people who aren't addicts at all. And that's a big thing to be around. Because when you're an alcoholic, you love to be around other alcoholics. You know, when you're a drug addict, you love to be around other drug addicts. So I have to stay away from people like that. You know, I obviously I'm never going to go to a strip club again. I'm never going to go into an adult bookstore again. I don't want to be around people who are perfectly cool with that stuff and don't see it as a problem or are way into it as a problem. And and that's, that's how I stay safe. That's how I stay safe. And like I said, I continue on with trying to educate people uh, in the mainstream. And I also try to work with those uh, addicts and partners who need a little bit of something and a little bit of reassurance before they go off to therapy. I see my job as getting them ready for real therapy. 
This might be a little bit of a curveball question, but do you know what percentage of people that are in porn are victims of human trafficking? Uh, I don't think that's something that you're ever going to get a an accurate count. You know, one one is too many, obviously. I think that it used to be a much higher percentage for people who were producing porn and trafficking people. You look over the last year with something like OnlyFans exploding or a lot of the cam sites exploding. Now, I'm sure that there is some trafficking on every porn site, but most of the cam sites, most and something like OnlyFans, which is do-it-yourself porn, these are young people who are choosing to go into this. So I think that that is probably diluting the number of people being trafficked to a, to a smaller percentage. It may, be, it may even be a higher number, but a smaller percentage than it was two years ago because so many young people um, and young adults are getting into the pornography creation as a means of income, especially uh, in 2020 during the pandemic. OnlyFans at the beginning of 2020 had about 300,000 content creators. At the end of 2020, OnlyFans had between 1.3 million and 1.5 million content creators. So that's one website, one website, there's at least a million new people creating pornography because of that. Now, most of them are doing it absolutely on their own volition. Absolutely, that's their choice. That's for whatever the reason, whether they need the money or you know they, they are hypersexual, whatever it is, I think that that probably dilutes the trafficking. And I think it also, in some ways, makes people not think as much about the trafficking not worrying about it much. And that's something that we do need to continue talking about. I don't think it's going to get people to stop looking at porn. I don't think there is necessarily any fantastic argument about other people being hurt that will stop people looking at porn. I think that the only way people will stop looking at porn is if they have a personal stake in it. If you look at the feminist uh, left of the 60s and 70s, if you look at the religious right of the 60s and 70s, these people were diametrically opposed on just about everything except pornography. And they put out a lot of arguments back then about why pornography was bad, why it was evil. You know, it, it's anti-woman, the people in it are coerced, uh, you know, plenty of other, you know, it, it, it's ruining the minds of our young. None of those arguments obviously worked because we have more pornography than ever. We have more people looking at pornography than ever. Trafficking is a horrible, horrible thing. I mean, I, I can only think of a few things that are more evil than that, than, than sex trafficking. However, getting the word out about sex trafficking doesn't seem to be doing anything as far as people watching. So people need to have more of a, people are looking at porn. They need to have more of an awareness of this. Hopefully, it, it hits them in the moral fiber somewhere. But I think that if we're ever going to control pornography in a certain way, we have to have some kind of incentive for the user to exercise some judgment, to exercise some kind of discretion when it comes to the material that they are looking at. 
Otherwise, I don't know how you're going to take care of trafficking. Um, I don't know how you're going to take care of a lot of stuff. Because it, it, it's about the individual user. It's a solo addiction. It's an addiction that, you know, you're, most people are already shamed about it. Most people already feel bad about it. You know, your brain, when you're an addict especially, isn't asking, you know, is this woman I'm looking at on the screen being trafficked? You're just trying to, you know, you're trying, you're trying to get that, that dopamine going. So we need to have more conversations around it. We need to have people care. How do we do that? Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure, but I know education is part of the part of the answer. That was a great answer, man. I, I don't know a whole lot about human trafficking, but I remember watching a documentary that came out. I think it came out about 10 years ago called Nefarious, um, and it went into pretty graphic detail about human trafficking. And I remember finishing that and... I just felt so much emotion after seeing that. Like I'm, I would consider myself like I'm not a super emotional guy, but like that was one of the, one of the few movies or documentaries. Like when it finished, like I was, I was in tears and it was like, man, I can't believe just the pain and the hurt and all these things that, that come along with, with human trafficking. Like it wasn't something that was on my radar. I hadn't really thought about it. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you when it comes to the underage stuff, I think that the one of the ways that we can help combat trafficking with the underage stuff is to get our kids to stop making underage stuff. You know, the people who make the most child pornography are the children. You know, they're making it for their high school friends and their middle school friends and taking pictures of themselves and making videos of them having sex with each other and passing them around. The bulk of child pornography out there is made by the children. And they don't see it as making child pornography at all. If we can get them somehow to stop making this stuff, the stuff that remains will be a lot more trafficked. You look at, well, obviously don't look at, but you know the child pornography industry, industry trade, if you go back to the 1990s, early 2000s, it was basically all trafficked because you didn't have kids in high school with their smartphones. Uh, these kids were still, uh, there was still a stigma about nudity amongst each other. And the large volume of uh, child pornography that was created, you know, came out of places like Russia and were trafficked children. But it's hard to tell exactly what is what these days. If you uh, listen to people who work for the police and with exploited children, because so much is made willingly by the kids. So, we, that's one thing that we need to, you know, tell them is stop making this stuff. Uh, you know, obviously, we talk about arguments that don't work. Well, you don't want this to pop up when you're 40 years old. That argument never works for a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old or a 20-year-old. They can't imagine being 40 years old. They don't imagine repercussions. And the truth is, in 20 years, if we have millions of, millions of 40-year-olds who took their clothes off 20 years earlier circulating on the internet, I don't think it's going to be that big a deal because there's just so much of it. And it will probably be in some ways socially permissive. So I don't think that that's a, an effective argument against it. We got to tell these kids that, you know, stop making this stuff, stop sharing this stuff because there are kids out there who are being abused and they can't be found because there is so much of this stuff out there. 
stop making it. It's not healthy. You should make this when you're 16. It's illegal. You know, even if you're 16, making it of yourself, it's illegal. And we, we do need to talk to our kids. That, again, is, again, part of the, you know, pornography speech is don't make pornography. You know, don't let anybody take pictures of you of what's under your bathing suit, but you don't take pictures or videos of what's under somebody else's bathing suit. And that's an important message for a seven-year-old to hear, and it's an important message for a 17-year-old to hear. You know, don't make pornography. It sucks that in 2020 we have to tell our kids don't make pornography, but times change and technology changes and the world evolves, and it's just where we find ourselves. You can't bury your head in the sand about it. You know, in the 1950s, we had to warn our kids about, you know, atomic war. We had to, you know, do uh, air raid drills with them hiding under their desk at school. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore because we live in a different world, you know, thankfully. But we live in a world where now pornography needs to be addressed. And in 50 years, maybe it'll be something else. But you have to react. And you have to parent according to the time. And at this point, pornography needs to be something that you talk to your kids openly about because it is everywhere. In closing, Josh, I'd just like to give you an opportunity to share whatever's on your heart. And then maybe you can tell us about your website and your books and different resources that could help people that are struggling with a porn addiction. Sure, absolutely. The two messages that I try to bring, no matter who I talk to or where I am, are number one, there is no such thing as a stereotypical porn addict. I, through uh, doing interviews, through being in rehab, through being in different support groups, I have met men and women ranging in age from 16 to their early 80s. I have met rich people, professional people, poor people, white, black, Asian, Mexican, you know, smart as a whip, stupid as a stump. There is no stereotypical porn addict. I think people picture this like pimply-faced 19-year-old guy in his mom's basement who's never kissed a girl in real life. I'm sure there are some of those, but like any other addiction, anybody can be a porn addict, and it's much easier to hide than a lot of addiction. So you know, understand it could be anybody. And then number two, if you believe you have a problem, get help for it. Do some research. Talk to some people. You don't want this to keep escalating. We keep escalating. You want to deal with an addiction as early as possible. Even if you think, well, maybe I'm not addicted. Maybe, maybe I just, you know, maybe I just look at a little too much. Still talk to somebody. Figure out where you are. Talk to people who are experts. Talk to people who've been there. Get yourself some help. You know, I, I look at it as um, I had a secret that was on my shoulder for so long, so stressful, so anxiety-ridden. You know, I know in the moment, perhaps it brought me some relief, but overall in my life, it was such a negative. And I don't think a lot of people who are addicts realize how much of a negative it is. They convince themselves it's a positive. Uh, if you think that you have any issues with pornography or any substance for that matter, get yourself some help today so it doesn't continue to escalate. Um, as far as my books go, I have three out there. The first one is my autobiography memoir, kind of looks at the last five, six years of my addiction. It's called The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About. My second book was designed for partners. I co-wrote that with a therapist friend of mine. 
That one is called He's a Porn Addict, Now What? And then my most recent book that came out in July 2020 is called Porn and the Pandemic, uh, How Three Months 2020 Changed Everything. And that's more of a journalistic look at how the online pornography world changed between March and May of 2020, when the pandemic started to take over, when we were in lockdown, because it was the it was the greatest thing that ever could have happened to the online pornography industry. So those are my three books. You could get them through Amazon, or if you're uh, if you like, you can come to my website. Uh, you can get them there, but and on my website, which is recoveringpornaddict.com, I have information about an online course that I've created for porn addict partners. I have information about my coaching and counseling side of things. I do write a couple articles every week, either about addiction or recovery. I do have a list of resources if you want to try to tackle this, and you know, from 12 steps to rehab to online bulletin boards and whatnot. Uh, I try to make it as a easy to navigate one-stop shop for somebody who wants to learn about porn addiction, whether they're an addict, a partner, or just interested. And that's also the best way to get in touch with me. So check out recoveringpornaddict.com. Joshua, thank you for coming on the show today and sharing your story. I think you have a lot of great resources for people that may be struggling with a porn addiction. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, and I appreciate I appreciate you letting me be here. You know, I do have the message, but I need the medium. And it's good people like you who aren't afraid to talk about this, who do recognize this is something that needs to be addressed. So, you know, thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. You know, get information out into the world. That's how we become a better society and better people. Thank you very much. I appreciate being invited on. Joshua, thank you so much again for coming on the show today. Be sure to check out his website. He has a ton of resources for people that are struggling with porn addiction and keep an eye out for his upcoming TED Talk. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.